This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, I'm going to recap UFC 250. Speaking of which, we're going to talk to Al Jermaine Sterling, who stops by. Oh, and after UFC 250, Conor McGregor retired. We'll talk about it. Plus, we'll catch up with Bao Win. He is the director of the ESPN 30 for 30 Be Water documentary on the life of Bruce Lee. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. And don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. All right, all right, all right. So hope everyone is doing well. Happy Monday to you. Um... Yeah, I mean, there's so much to get to. We barely have enough show today. And in fact, we don't have enough show. Like, we'll have to extend some of these topics throughout the course of the week. But that's okay. Because there is plenty to get to. Hope you had a good weekend. Um, The weather was not great on Saturday where I live. But it was spectacular yesterday. So I got outside a little bit. And spent some time with my fam. Really enjoyed it. It's always rejuvenating. I also, believe it or not, get this, slept till 1 p.m. yesterday. Now I went to bed at 4, but still, that's a long time for your boy. Couldn't believe how late I slept. So I don't think I've slept that late, honestly, in 10 or 15 years. And crazy amount of sleep. So that was pretty cool and unique. Now, without further ado, let's get into the biggest news. Uh, well, you know what's funny? I'm not even sure what the biggest news is, to be honest with you, because... You can go in two different directions, but let's go to the biggest event news to start the show, which is, of course, UFC 250 is in the books. What can we say about it overall? First of all, pretty fun show. Now, I, that, that is not altogether surprising because we were even saying on this show on, I would say through parts of last week, you know, I didn't see a lot of buzz for it. And I think the numbers bear that out. Dana White can say what he wants about how much people are watching. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that this was, you know, not in keeping with even a standard UFC pay-per-view. But if you know what you're doing as a fight fan and you have a decent palate and you know where talent exists and you make your consumer choices accordingly, you knew that there was a lot to like on this card. Let's go from the top down, sort of the big hits. Number one, Amanda Nunes winning unanimous decision over Felicia Spencer. I mean, we had called it on Friday. We tried to find any way possible to give Felicia, you know, some credit. And, you know, listen, she's a talented fighter. She works really hard. The things that we thought were true kind of were. She showed good defensive jujitsu. She was incredibly durable. You know, but that's it. That's it. Uh, That fight was a blowout on paper, and that fight was a blowout in reality. Amanda Nunes, you know, granted, women's featherweight is not exactly the deepest weight class, but at least insofar as her obligations are concerned, you know, across two weight divisions, she doesn't have a rival. Now, you could say maybe Shevchenko, and we can talk about that throughout the course of the week, but in terms of who you look out out there and say, wow, that person's a real threat to her title, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess the answer is Shevchenko, but, you know, Amanda's won those twice, and I thought the second of those was very controversial, but, you know, just look at the other top contenders there at Bantamweight. You've got Aspen Ladd and Juliana Pena and... Uh, Irene Aldana, and dude, they're not on her level, not physically or technically. Even at 145, you know, you, Felicia Spencer can take a punch, my word, but she just had nothing for her. And that, that was what really stood out to me here in this performance. When I think about what 
I took home from this. It's that we always sort of talk about Amanda's punching power as being a standout fact, and that is nothing about that changed. But really, when you think about it, she's not really technically better than these other fighters. Like, obviously, she, which isn't to say she's the best at all of things over her rivals. Like, Durandamy was giving her problems on the feet, but she can then just go to the wrestling. So she's technically gifted, yes. Superior in many ways, yes. But also well-rounded enough where she's got answers for essentially any challenge that so far has been thrown her way since 2015. Not only does she have the sort of technical prowess, but she's physically more gifted and not merely by virtue of the punching power, which was obviously on display. But on top of that, you know, she was ragdolling Felicia Spencer. She was getting takedowns and just throwing her to the ground. When they were locked up in the clinch, she was not muscled at all. And Spencer, I don't think, can really make 135. Not easily. It would be very difficult for her. Uh, she's a tr- you know much more better suited for 145, and physically she had nothing for Amanda, nothing, not nothing technically and nothing physically. She was completely outgunned, which by the way led to a bit of controversy about whether or not her corner should stop it. You know, in the end, if you ask me, in round five, Amanda Nunes kind of hit the brakes a little bit. And I think took some pity and some mercy. On poor uh, Felicia Spencer, I doubt she'll ever admit that. And, of course, I can't really prove it, but it just sort of seemed that way. Getting on top, not being that active when she was fresh. But either way, beat down City. Amanda Nunes is so talented, so impressive. So, of course, we'll talk about what it means for her next and everything else. Then it was the Bantamweight Showcase. Wow, folks. What do you want to say? I don't even know where to start. First of all, Cody Garbrandt is back. How impressive is he? I mean, that knockout, I thought he had shattered the face of Rafael Rafael Asuncao, excuse me, to the point where he was going to need that sage Northcutt type surgery. I mean, the punch he laid on him, Jesus Christ, that thing was heavy. Oh, my word. He laid into him, man. That was incredible. And you know what? He looked sharp, defensively responsible. Light on his feet, not overcommitting, not not making bad decisions. And Jimmy Smith had argued, you know, one of the knocks on Col- uh, not Colby, excuse me, Cody, was that you know he maybe he can rehearse a game plan, but he can't think for himself. I think in this fight, you saw both sticking to a game plan and the fruits of the labor, but also making some calls, making some reads. Now I'm not here to say that all of Jimmy's criticisms are invalidated. I just think we need to maybe temper them. A little bit. I thought you saw enough there to say, wow, this guy can make reads, he can make decisions, and he can listen to a game plan, follow it, be diligent, be careful, and still be ruthless. Wow. So impressive by him. Then you go to Aljamain Sterling. I mean, we all thought that fight, everybody thought that fight with Corey Sandhagen was the best fight on the card on paper, super evenly matched. You know, either guy could win. I kind of thought Corey maybe had the upper hand. Nope. Aljamain Sterling went in there and absolutely took that fight from him. Corey Sandhagen was never in the fight. 90 seconds, he gets submitted rear naked choke from the back. Aljamain Sterling is such a showcase in what it means to get better, what it means to improve, and already have a lot of talent. Yes, of course. 
but not everyone's career in the UFC is going to be stumble free. It's MMA. You're going to fight tough guys. And over time, you're probably going to have a couple of L's along the way. Well, Sterling does, but now he's on a five fight win streak. Now he looks like he is just firing on all cylinders. He is maximizing his potential. And that was one of those moments, man, where, you know, you needed to make a statement to show the world who you are. And he did exactly that. And by the way, I don't even think that necessarily the door is closed on Corey Sandhagen for having his moment in the sun somewhere in the future. It just wasn't going to be on Saturday. Aljamain Sterling was never going to let that happen. And he'll be here, as I mentioned, at 2 p.m. to discuss it. Incredible, right? And then last but certainly not least, how about Sean O'Malley? Sean O'Malley, incredible, dude. Knock, well, first of all, Cody Garbrandt had a walk-off KO. But then earlier in the card, Sean O'Malley, who was also on this show, he had a walk-off KO. Man, that dude, you know why people like him? You know, he's different. Obviously, he can fight his ass off, and that helps. But you know what the thing about Sean O'Malley is? He doesn't have to put on airs. He doesn't have to try. Dude is just effortless, effortlessly cool. It, 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 it's not a challenge for him. It's not a chore. It's not a thing he has to think about. He just does it, and he can fight, and he's friendly, and dude, people like him, and he is just winning. That right hand he laid on Eddie Wineland and sent him to the land of wind and ghosts. Good Lord. Incredible walk-off KO. And granted, I kind of think Garbrandt's was a little bit better because it was vicious and it was against higher-level opposition, but the mechanics that O'Malley is showing, so clean, so well, you know, so sharpened, and he's only 25 years old. This dude is going to be in the top 15 after this, and he is screaming for a better opponent and a top challenge. And I, he, you know, not merely has he earned it, what would be the point in giving him anything less at this point? He is so good. And there were other bright spots on the card. Cody Stamen had, you know, a very difficult challenge, but he rose to the occasion. And Herbert Burns looked pretty good. And I can go on and on. It was a great card. It was a lot of fun. I had a real good time watching it. So. We'll get to all of the pieces uh, therein. This week on World of Basketball, Argentinian legend Luis Scola joined the show and spoke about what his ultimate basketball goal was as a young player. I was obsessed with the NBA. <laughs> I didn't want to try. I just want to get in there for one minute. All I wanted was get in, put my jersey on, making sure that my name is on the pad, get inside the court for one minute, and then run out with the jersey. I had, you know... To make yeah. sure that when I run out of there, I have my, <laughs> still have my jersey on. That's all I wanted. Yeah. I didn't even yeah. want to touch a ball. You know, yeah. I was obsessed with it. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. All right, let's bring him in now. I mean, you want to talk about a win. Jesus Christ, this was unbelievable on Saturday. Just took, as I mentioned, took the fight by the scruff of the neck, beating Corey Sanhagen in, what, 90 seconds or something? Unbelievable. Uh, the Funk Masters here, Aljamain Sterling. Hi, Aljamain. How are you? What's happening? Thanks for having me. Yeah, dude. Well, first of all, congratulations. I mean, is this, is this your favorite win of all the wins you've had in the UFC? Uh, I don't know. I mean... In terms of the magnitude around it, I would say yes. But in terms of my biggest accomplishment, I, I still am in love with the, the Pedro Munoz fight because I think that showed a crazy different side of my game that people have been wanting to see for such a very long time. And uh, this one is just special in a different way. They're all special in their own ways. Every fight is important. 
Yeah, certainly. Okay, so let's walk through the fight here a little bit. Look like the game plan was you were not going to give this guy any space. You went in, crossed the octagon, had him behind the two black lines, and punched your way into the clinch. So talk, talk to me. What was, what was the idea? You wanted to make this a grappling contest early, huh? Yeah, that was the, that was the game plan. We knew that that was going to be my strongest point, and it's kind of like the art of uh, Sun Tzu, man. You know, uh, take the fight in the path of least resistance, and that's what I did. So I made sure... I got the fight where I wanted it. I knew he was good on the ground, but I didn't think he could. I didn't think he was anywhere to the level of the guys I've been training with and um, the stuff that I'm doing. I think is pretty special in the room. So I knew it was going to be a tough night for him if I were to get to take down. And all I needed was one. So to close the gap, take away his movement, and uh, make him have one option. You got to learn. You got to wrestle. You got to wrestle with me. You know, keep me off of you. Make me pay with strikes. And if you can't do that, then it sucks to be you. All right, so I want to talk about certain individual sequences. There were a couple that stood out to me. The first one is you have him in the clinch against the fence, and he gives up the whizzer. And it was after you had pulled his hand out, he had nearly gone back down, right? And then he came back up, and then he dropped the whizzer, and that's where you were able to get behind him. Was the pressure so strong on him that, that he gave it up? Why did he give it up so easily? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I just think I'm really strong, man. I'm a really strong band weight. Uh, I'm a pretty big guy. I cut a lot of weight to get down to this weight class. And even in the weight cut, the last few weight cuts, I mean, I've been contemplating, like, dude, what am I doing to, to my body for it to go all the way down to this weight? I can compete with these guys at 45. Heck, man, even some guys at 55 in terms of the strength, probably not the frame because these guys, those guys are a lot taller. But for the, for the most part, man, at 45, 35, I'm one of the strongest guys, if not the strongest. Not in terms of lifting weights. I'm not that strong in terms of lifting weights. These guys could probably outbench me and all that type of stuff. But that stuff doesn't matter. When I get a hold of you, it's a different type of feel. And um, we got some real heavy-hitted grapplers in our gym, and I think that's the difference. So I, I don't know. I think he felt the pressure. When I grabbed him, he didn't feel that strong. And I, I was like, dude, I'm going to horse this guy down, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be easy. You know, I hate to say it like that, but – like I said, man, it's a different level when it comes to grappling. That's my world. If I get anyone in that position, I'm taking them down and good luck trying to get up, especially with my hand being back to pretty much 100%. I'm, I might not have the full range of flexibility, but to have the strength back, that's, that's everything. That was everything to my game before. It's everything now. Uh, that's pretty key. Let's talk about some of the hand fighting sequences. There was one moment where he was trying to get his shoulder blades to the mat and he couldn't because of the body triangle. So that body triangle must have been real tight. Okay. But the thing that I noticed was I went back and I replayed the final hand fighting sequence, Aljo. When you guys rolled, uh, you're both facing the mat, right? There's a moment where he gets to his base and he has your hand, but it's your choking arm and he pulls it across but he almost pulls, it looked like he pulled the choking arm into position. Walk me through the final sequence before you had fully slapped on the choke. And that was when you rolled him over, right? Because then the choking arm was there and then it was, it was, it was, a, it was the show was closed. So what happened there? Yeah, we, we, we have this thing that we do at Sarah BJJ. It's kind of like a, a swimming sequence. And um, it's actually behind me right now, which is actually hilarious. But uh, That's funny. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, we, we, it's, it's kind of like swimming. So we swim across, we swim across, and uh, he had a two-on-one. As he had the two-on-one, I don't know what this guy just did in the backyard, but he just screamed out. The hell did he just do? He get shot? <laughs> I don't know what's going on. He dropped? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we swim across. He defended the, the 
He's correct. The face uh, two and one. He did a good job of that relieving the pressure. I honestly thought the fight was done there, but you know he fought out of it. Two and one. He extended it. He tried to address the the body triangle, and I slapped it back down and I snatched him back up like Scorpion from Mortal Kombat. Pulled him back into my into my guard. You know he fought out one more time. He tried to turn to the the body lock to the other side, which was smart. He tried to get his shoulders to the mat, but I may, was able to maintain my underhook. And as I maintained the underhook, he had a two-on-one. He tried to pull it across the body, but I was able to free my hand and come clean across the neck. Once you get that V-point pointing dead center in their chest, underneath their chin, that's pretty much all she wrote, you know? So you get that V underneath. Now the V of the elbow is pointing down. I'm cupping the shoulder with my choking hand. And now all I need to do is prop myself up on my right elbow. And from there, I slide that back underneath as we're turning. And that takes away pretty much all his chances of, because my hand is hidden. This hand is hidden. So I'm taking him across. I have him. I'm locked up. As I take him across, I hide my, my non-choking hand. And that's the one that I use for the defense to lock it in and secure it. Once I get that, that's pretty much, you're done. Because I'm under. I got the V in perfect position. All I have to do is compress. I'm going to get both arteries. My, the elbow is pointing underneath the chin. And either way, if your chin is tucked, you're going to get a crush. And you're going to want to let it go. And I, I mean, I'm just going to get the choke. It's, it's uh, just something we do, man. It's something we do. It's, yeah. kind of it's, a, it's academic at that point. And then uh, he did go out, right? He went out, like he tapped, but then he went out after he tapped, right? Yeah, he didn't tap when, I didn't feel him tap when we were in the moment. But as you see on the TV, when I watched it back a couple of times, I was like, oh, he, he actually tried to tap, but he kind of went out like, as he did like a one and then just went to sleep. You know, he yeah. fought all the way through. I had to fight all the way through, so I give him credit for that. But um, there was no way out of that. There was no way I was letting that guy out. Well, I got to tell you, you know, you must be so strong, Aljo, because I've tried to explain this to people. You, you know, th this one was a great example. You could see your whole body just really uh, put it on him for this one. But going back to like, what was it the Mizugaki fight when you had the head and arm triangle from underneath? I mean, this is the thing I tried to tell folks, the head and arm triangle, some people can get it just going to the side, but a lot of times they have to set an angle, right? They have to twist into it or even bring their chest on top of the back of the tricep to get it underneath. You got to be super strong. So when you had that under, you, you could feel it, right? You could feel you were locked in were you like thinking it's over, it's over, it's over, it's over? Like what was running through your head right before those final moments? I, I knew he wasn't going to tap. I was like, I, I got to put this guy to sleep because that's what he wants to do. So, you know, the same man had to get put to sleep, unfortunately, as, as ironic as that is. Um, yeah, I knew it was dead to rights, man. I, I got a different type of squeezing endurance. And I don't think a lot of people understand that when I get on your neck, I get on your back. I don't let go. I can squeeze for an insane amount of time that people think it's unrealistic. You probably think that I was probably on something, but it's just all natural, man. It's hard work in the gym. And uh, I do a lot of isometric training for situations like that. And I think people are surprised when they see how long I can actually keep up that pressure. You know, so uh, I knew I was going to sell out in that position. Like I said, I thought, I thought the fight was done when I first, first had the, the face crank on and I arched him all the way back. I felt him like squirming. Like he, I knew he was done, but he, he was able to survive that, so I made one little adjustment, and once I got that under his shin completely the right way, I knew that fight was game. Blouses. <laughs> Fair enough. Aljamain Sterling joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. You know, you had an interesting look on your face, Aljamain, after the fight. Like, I mean, I mean, like right after the fight. Like, you know, you're running around the octagon celebrating. You're saying, "Where's Dana? Where's Dana?" You had this look of. Um, it was a mix of joy and almost like you were almost in tears a little bit there. I, I wonder what were you feeling in that moment.
Dude, I blacked out, man. I, that was something that I didn't think was going to happen. You know, I mean, I knew I was capable of getting a submission in the first round, but I did not imagine it going in, going like that. That was like almost as if we were drilling class. And, you know, my, my partner was giving me a 50% resistance so I could get a certain look for an opponent. That was, that's what it felt like. It felt like I drilled it so much. It felt like I was just dominant, superior, and there's levels, man. You know, Sanhagen was talking a big game saying that there's, these guys are all world-class and he was a notch above that. And uh, I think I'm like that when it comes to the ground game. Uh, I, I think my ground game is just a little bit different than these guys. And I think that's what makes me so dangerous because I can strike, um, very aware of what's going on in, in the surroundings when guys are throwing strikes, I'm elusive. I have fast, quick twitch muscles. I have good endurance, good cardio, and I think that's a nightmare for anybody. Long, lengthy, and uh, I'm strong, man. When I get a, get a hold of you, it's just it's not a good. It's not a good feeling. No, it certainly is, and it doesn't last very long either. So now you're in a position where even Dana was saying, you know, how he could say anything otherwise would be crazy. But you're going to be the guy, the the number one contender. So do you have a preference? Would you rather fight Aldo? Would you rather fight Jan? Does it matter? No, they're, they're both, honestly, they're both big names in terms of where they're at in their careers. I think everyone still respects Aldo. He's done so much great work in the past, and I think to get a win over him would be amazing. A huge feather in the cap. And to get a win over Peter Jan, who a lot of people are hyping up, you know, I got my crew and my team, we're loading up all the C4 because we're going to play them on those railroad tracks and we're going to blow that shit up. So, um, you know, either one, man, I'm good with either. Is either ways, either one of those guys are a big fight and a huge opportunity for me to further cement my name in the, in the history books. At this bantamweight division, man, is stacked. There's so many good guys. We got another 35 pound fight coming up. One of our guys, Marab Devishvili, fighting Ray Borg. It's it's an exciting time to be a bantamweight, man. There's just so much mm. going around, especially with Sayudo now gone and not to making any more of these clown fights. Um, it's a good time, you know. People are starting to recognize that we can bang, we can wrestle, we got great endurance, we got heart, and uh, we're entertaining, man. I think that's what people want to see. They want to be entertained, and I think no one does it better than us right now. You look at that top 15, guys who aren't even ranked yet, it's, it's a killer's role. Any one of these guys could be a world champion on any given day. So uh, I'm, that's why I'm, I'm just glad that I'm leading the pack. I'm the guy leading the pack right now, and I can't wait for my opportunity for that long-eluded title shot. And uh, rightfully earned, man, I'm glad I didn't get, like, it wasn't handed to me, you know? No one gave this to me. I went out and I earned it, put my head down, blue collar style, like all the other hardworking American citizens. And, you know, that's what it's all about. Yeah, you have to be really proud of yourself. You know, when you go to the UFC, you can't expect to be, you know, the John Jones route where you never lose, right? There's going to be a couple of stumbles along the way, but it just seems to me, man, you're still young. You figured it all out, right? You've got your game and firing on all cylinders. You understand what works for you, how to apply it. You're doing it diligently and look at the, the fruits of your labor is um, obviously is the best you've ever been. That's not the question, but I guess the question is, do you feel like uh, you finally understand? And I'm going to say how to fight, right? You always could fight, but I mean, up to your potential, smart eye training, good fight IQ, understanding uh, a game execution. It just seems like everything is coming together at this point. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think um, everything is just coming full circle. I think all the years we put into this, uh, all my training, wrestling, competition, I think all the ups and downs in training, this, there's been times I get my ass kicked a lot in training, you know, and uh, people don't get to see those, those hard days that we got to come back from and mentally make sure we're all there and prepared for the big, the big battle when everyone only gets to see that 15 minutes of work. Like I've been in that dark place that San Hagen's probably in right now. And uh, I know what it feels like to have a very, very short night when you thought things were going to go your way. And uh, 
he's going to bounce back. Good thing he's a young young guy still. And uh, for me, I think it's just a culmination of everything. You know, I'm, I'm at the top of my game. I'm in my fighting prime. And uh, I think teaching the classes at the gym has helped me a ton just to be able to evaluate fighters and different skill sets, doing my podcast, being able to analyze different matchups. And I think all that plays a factor and then having a great team behind you. And I make sure I tell these guys what I want to see, like, make give me these little cue reminders because sometimes you forget when you're in the heat of the moment and to have those guys kind of spark that reminder in your mind, like, okay, yes, this is what we've been working on. So you can kind of see it because sometimes we get so caught up in the moment that it's hard to pull yourself back and realize that you might be going too crazy in the fight or you might be too, too lax and you might not see the opportunities that you've been working on for the weeks leading up to that fight. So I think it's just a cerebral approach that I've taken to this game and, that's what makes me dangerous. I'm not just a guy going out there fighting. Um, I'm, I'm intelligently breaking it down and assessing the situation as the fight's going on at a, at a high level. And I think that's what makes me a very dangerous opponent for anybody. It's a crazy time in the country. Uh, you had indicated that um, certainly what is happening with the George Floyd uh, protests all over the country, it was everywhere, not merely on the weekend, but of course the last, gosh, it feels like a few weeks at this point. What Were you... What were you feeling uh, related to that in terms of not being able to this point? Because you had obviously to worry about your own career. What were you feeling? Were you feeling inspired by it? Were you feeling uh, not by the death, of course, but by the response? Uh, were you feeling energized? Were you, what, what was it doing to you throughout fight week and then maybe even on fight night itself? It, it, honestly, it was mentally draining, man. Mentally taxing because everything you looked at was about that. And then you see the, the downplaying of the police brutality, then you see the, the protesters, you see them getting all lumped up and summed into one group of they're just rioters and they're looters. And it's like, nah, man, you, it's the same thing. Not all not all bad cops represent the entire bunch of the, the police force. Not all looters represent the entire message and the movement of what people are trying to spread awareness um, in the protesting group. You know, they're, they're different things. You know, my whole thing was that, uh, you know, if you're a cop, you're a good cop and you, you know you're some of your brotherhood people, people who are fighting along that line with you are doing things that you know aren't right and you're just standing by and you're watching it. You're part of the problem. And I think uh, it, goes to, it goes in the same hand in hand with if you're a part of a crime where your friend just goes to a bank, you just come along for the ride. You didn't know he was going to, what they were intending to do, but then he comes out the car, comes out the bank with a, a bag of money and he's telling you, go, go, go. You're now an accomplice. Are you not an accomplice? You know, so it's, it's kind of that same thing. If you're you're guilty by association just by being there and watching it and not speaking up, I think everyone's got to do their part and uh, do their part to just make this world a better place. And uh, hopefully we can really have a conversation to to really change the, the, the situation for everybody. I think um, people are, are scared, they're nervous, they're on edge. And um, obviously being in quarantine hasn't helped anybody, but I think there's a powerful message that is getting lost in the translation with all the, the, the downplay with the looters talk and stuff like that. And I think you need to get back to what's really important and it's equality for everybody. You know, yeah, this is the land of the free, but there's still a lot of reforms and issues that are in place in this country that need to be adjusted and looked at to, to help get everyone on the same equal playing field. And it, this goes, this, this, this is a radical conversation because there's a lot of stuff that needs to be looked at. You know, if you place people in a low income area and you, you have nothing, 
you got, you got to expect that there's going to be crime because when one person starts to succeed, you start to see other people who start to take that mentality of, well, I want a piece of that too. And then you start to have that almost a crab in a barrel mentality where you go to a high income area where the, the middle class, the high, the, uh, the upper class, you don't see those issues because no one needs anything. There's not a problem. But if you go to an area where predominantly black people are struggling, of course, the crime rates are going to be higher. So using these uh, statistics as black and white arguments is pretty much impossible to use because there's a big gray area that people need to step back and look at. And I think people need to see the entire picture that it's not just one thing that's going to fix everything. It's a whole systematic thing that's going on that needs to be addressed from different angles. I don't have all the solutions, but I know the best way to start is with ourselves because if we start with ourselves, we can start making these personal adjustments, making sure we're teaching our kids the right way, showing them that there's more access to, to resources, not just a basketball, football, and being a rapper or a stripper. And black people in, in the black and white, black and the brown communities, we're not just that. We have so much ability to do so much more. And I think we kind of get in our own way sometimes and not realize that we can be great. I'm from that same environment. And look at me, I'm from a family of 20 and I'm the first one to, to go out and really do something with themselves in terms of going to college, being the first one in my family to get a college degree, uh, playing sports on a high level and getting pretty much looks from colleges. We, we didn't think any of these things were possible. It was just sell drugs, get money fast. And, and that's the, that's the lifestyle we know, we know and live by, you know? So for me to be able to be that figure in, in my neighborhood and being that inspiration, I think has really set, set uh, heavy with a lot of people back home. And they realize there are, there is a way out is, whether or not we take that opportunity. And I think it's up to us as the new future to kind of to plant that seed for everybody else. Like, listen, anything can happen. You know, we might be born at a disadvantage, but it's up to us to use our opportunities, the same 24 hours in a day that everybody has to kind of grow. And it might be harder. It's like trying to tell a 40-year-old drug dealer, yo, stop selling drugs, go to college and change your life. You can't tell somebody that. It doesn't make any sense because they're at an age where it's almost virtually impossible for them to go back in time and fix all the mistakes that they made because they weren't taught the right way, you know? So I think it's up to us to, to, to start and then address these other issues and tie from the outside in and our way towards, towards that, you know, or should I say from the inside out, you know, start with ourselves and work our way out to try to tackle these issues. And I, I think it's something that could be done. And again, you know, I, sorry for the long winded response, but again, it's not as simple as, you know, the police just need to be better. It's, it's a lot of things. It's, it's everybody, man. I think it comes down to respect, treating people with respect and treating people the way you would want your parents to be treated and your siblings to be treated because that's the only way things are going to be right because if you treat someone the way you don't want to be treated, then you can expect someone to, to respond and react the same way, right? You know, so what you do to me is you don't, don't be surprised by my reaction, you know? So I think uh, a lot of people don't have those upbringings and, and those moral grounds. I think that's what... That's what would start really shifting things. I don't know. It's uh well, Aljamain, I got to say, we're, we're we're a bit up against a break, so I apologize for I know, cutting I you know. off. We have I to get. Th- I didn't want to go that long, but yeah, that's it's okay. Funny. It's a message to be heard, and certainly you're in a position to deliver it. And you are uh, talking about starting with yourself, buddy. You are doing that times a thousand. Really, really uh, nice to see what you've become. Congratulations on an absolutely phenomenal win. Cannot wait for your title fight, which seems like a guarantee at this point. So get some rest. Enjoy the 50 Gs. Take care of yourself. And I look forward to seeing you in a title fight in the UFC. Good, sir. Thank you so much, Aljamain Sterling.
Thank you, guys. WWE legend, The Undertaker. I have tried my hardest to protect kayfabe. Honestly, just within the last couple of years, I mean, I would cringe when I would hear people, you know, like we're doing now, like talking openly about behind the scenes stuff. It would just like, I, I'd grit my teeth and just, I think I was the real last holdout to, to kayfabe. Listen to Busted Open's interview with WWE legend, The Undertaker, on demand now via the SiriusXM app. Just search Busted Open Interviews now free for most subscribers now i get it about conor mcgregor right allegedly ostensibly retiring on saturday night i don't even have the tweet in front of me but like i'm retiring thanks a lot i think you took the instagram later and put a picture of a cake up that said uh, happy retirement daddy or from his kid or his kids or, or whatever uh, the, the the specifics of that that particular message don't really matter but in any event, let's, let's wrap up here, or let's uh, take a step back. Conor McGregor apparently retires on Saturday night for the third time and for the third time on Twitter specifically, social media certainly. Then later on, he talks to ESPN. And he told ESPN basically he had a general complaint that he was bored with what the UFC was trying to do with him, and he didn't want it, everything to be so delayed. Remember, he had a big win in January over Donald Cerrone. And what he wanted was a fight, an interim title fight with either Gaethje or a fight with Anderson Silva because Gaethje is not set to fight Nurmagomedov until September, which means if he gets the winner of that, which you could argue he didn't deserve, but we'll talk about that in just a second, it wouldn't be till what, like December he's fighting again? So he would fight once a year, basically, or you know, twice at this point, you know, January, December. I don't think that's what he wants to do, right? That wasn't the plan for the 2020 season. And the way he described it was he would go to the UFC with these ideas, fights that made sense. And they would just say no, just to spite him in his words, you know, just to show power. And what they wanted him to do was go up and down weights, 170, this moment, 155, the next. And so he's kind of all over the place. And he didn't like that lack of consistency. He didn't like how, well, I should say the lack of amenability to his ideas. And so he's like, you know what, if you're not going to do any of this stuff, I'm just going to like live under their thumb I'm out. So, you know, enjoy the rest of your year. This, you know, fighting whoever, and we don't know who those would have been. Is it, you know, Paul Felder who they wanted to fight? Or, you know, guy, who, I don't know. I don't know what he was being offered by UFC. But his suggestions, the interim title fight, and then uh, the fight with Anderson Silva, um, I guess the UFC had no, issue, no, no desire for. Now, you could say a lot of different things about that. You could say, well, I don't like either of those fights for him. To be candid, I don't like either of those fights either in the following sense. Straight up, I told you guys I just didn't like Connor versus Silva, and I still don't. Nothing about that changes, but we'll come back to that in a second. The other one is the interim title fight against Justin, and you're like, oh, well, you know, he hasn't earned that right. First of all, half of you, half of you, 90% of you tell me that the interim title fight doesn't even mean anything, number one, right? Number two, so who cares? Number two, he's probably going to get the winner of that fight. So I don't like that fight either, but if your objection is he hasn't earned an opportunity to fight for a title, most people tell me that that title doesn't mean anything, and he's going to get an opportunity to get the real one probably after that. You could say, oh, well, Nurmagomedov won't say yes. Dude, they're going to find a way to make that fight or get him involved in some kind of way. You know, I, I just don't believe that that's true. And, you know, if Gaethje wins, then problem solved. You know, you get the fight anyway. And he doesn't want to wait that long. So either way, he's probably going to get a fight with a belt in the line. He just wants to get it sooner rather than later. I could sort of understand that candidly. 
although I'm not in favor of that. Now, I'm not in favor of Silva versus Connor either. It's a silly fight that does not interest me at all. However, however, I will say this. I'll backtrack at least a little bit. And by that, I mean the following. If keeping that guy happy and keeping him in rotation for a fight that he would probably win, I mean, it's a little hard to say exactly how things would go, maybe. Uh, But even if he loses, it's some sort of experimental fight. doesn't mean a whole lot. I don't think that would really derail things. They're giving title shots to people who haven't competed in three and a half years. Like this idea that you have to, you know, that you have to do the Aljamain Sterling thing where you have to really earn it is the case that Connor's under. It's just not true. So if getting that fight going, keeping him busy is a means to an end, why wouldn't you just do it? I don't like the fight either, but if it makes those folks happy, it sells and it gets my guy ready for another opportunity down a weight class at 155, who the hell cares? Just make it. What's the, what's the, what's the, what's the problem? I don't understand it. And so the, I, I don't like those fights, but if you're the UFC and I know they don't like to bend, they don't like to be leveraged. I completely understand. We, we know this about them. We understand this. Nothing is, nothing is at all new about that. But sometimes just working with these guys, provided that what Connor is saying is a reasonable approximation of the truth, to me seems like a better path going forward because here is what is happening. We haven't even gotten to Jorge Masvidal and what he is doing, which is not only tweeting his discontent about what he's not being paid, he is doing it by referencing the materials that came out of the court case that we have talked about on this show. We've had the authors of the guys who, who made those reports possible uh, for the MMA media, being John Nash and Paul Gift. We have talked about them extensively on this show. We have covered that case from, from pillar to post. He is referencing facts that were revealed during the course of, of you know, this discovery and then the trial process. Dana was asked about the 18% figure by credit to uh, MMA junkies uh, John Morgan. Dana did not deny it. Of course, he kind of you know changed the subject. But what's the common line here? To me, Connor was not necessarily asking for more money, although he has been rebuffed in a number of other ways. Ownership stake in UFC, cut of the gate, who, who knows? They took some money from him, a significant chunk for the Mayweather and McGregor fight. The through line, the, you know, the common thing here that, that unites that claim and the Jones claim and the Henry claim is that, like, basically you can tell, one, there is a fatigue with star fighters in being pushed around. They're tired of it. And that's been the truth for a long time, but it's really beginning to hit a tipping point. Two, we now have information. I mean, all these arguments about, well, it's better to keep it secret with what people make because it really is better for them. It's all bullshit. There's no evidentiary basis for that argument, even a little bit. I don't care who tells you that. You are witnessing a, I wouldn't call it a revolt. You are witnessing dissension in the ranks, not merely because guys are in some general sense feeling like they're owed more. They know it. And they know it by virtue of the, what has been published, which now they are referencing when they're talking about what they're owed. It, anybody who tells you that it's better to keep it secret is either, is either uh, I mean, I don't know what to say exactly. They're just not right. 
There's, and they couldn't argue that position if their lives depended on it. Certainly not against somebody who would be a capable interlocutor or at least a reasonably discerning audience. It's not true. So you have this general sense of we don't like being pushed around. UFC is worth more money than ever. We now have this information that is public about how much the UFC has historically made. And they've had enough. And I think a big part of this is Henry sits out and then John sits out and now Jorge's sitting out. And again, Connor's complaints are a little bit different, but now he's sitting out. Is there a contagion that is spreading, for lack of a better description, with everyone realizing everyone else is kind of sitting out? Yes. And why is that why does that appear to be happening? Because I, you know, I've had this debate with some folks about like, oh, now's not a good time. 40 million Americans are out of work, blah, blah, blah. Man, there's never a good time for athletes to ask for more money or, or you know, to play hardball and sit out. There's never a good time. It doesn't matter how righteous the cause. It can be, I've seen it with star players where, you know, leaning on an organization, by the way, works. Every time they do it, it doesn't matter if they're the, you know, you had Aaron Donald still on a rookie deal making terrible money. And he was the best in his position in the league. And he sat out for the Rams, I think, one or two seasons ago. And it was all anybody could talk about over and over and over again. These millionaires, they need to understand that, you know, the working man is out there paying their hard-earned money. You know, I understand that complaint. I get it. Believe me, I get it. There are not many Jorge Masvidal's in the world. They have a right to get their money that they have generated and certainly fight for what they are worth. And it never feels good when it happens at a time when a lot of Americans are struggling, but there's never a good time. It wouldn't matter if the economy was booming. People would still complain. That's just the reality. And I won't say that the UFC is wounded by the pandemic. I don't think that is exactly right. They are in many ways relative to the other sports entities out there, in some ways kind of thriving to a degree, although Dana White has articulated that putting on these shows and doing this in the way that they are is you know, certainly a hefty challenge, and I, I, I take that seriously. But the point that deserves to be made here is the contagion is spreading among these upper elite guys like Connor, again, slightly different reasons than everybody else, uh, because they recognize the UFC by virtue of this pandemic is at a bit of a, I want to say a perilous moment, but they know that they're, even though they have this inoculated business model, certainly resistant business model with guaranteed revenue, contractual guaranteed revenue. This is bad press for UFC, man. I was, someone had me on morning radio here for the top sports station in, in DC because they wanted to talk about Connor doing this. And Jorge was on sports center with this, uh, you know, will this lead to something? I, I was pretty adamant that if it was just John and just Henry, no. And if it's just John and just Henry and just Jorge and just Connor, that's pretty hefty. But, you know, I'm a, still a little bit skeptical. But if this keeps going, you know, listen, man, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube on this one. If other people start joining this fight, and now with clear information about what they need to inform themselves to make an educated call about what they generate or what they're owed and what it all looks like with evidence, with facts, this ain't going away, man. It's not, it's not, it's not going away anytime soon. And it just forces this conversation with UFC over and over and over again about what people make and what rights they should have. 
and what fighters are entitled to. And if you ask me, they're entitled to not merely what they generate, but if you're going to go out there and get brain damage for a living, and the way you get brain damage is by leveraging skills that very few humans have, man, you should get paid for that. We have a, we have a responsibility, I think, as a community to make, make sure that they get their money. I'm not saying UFC has to give in to every Conor McGregor demand. Far from it. But it, you know, you're just hearing this common refrain of it's take it or leave it. It's do or don't. It's our way or the highway. Whether it's with a contract, whether it's with the terms of the contract, whether it's getting a new one, whether it's pay in general, or this fight makes sense and that one doesn't. And the reality is if they don't make the Masvidal versus Usman fight, as we said last week, they might end up just making Usman and Burns. And frankly, that's a pretty good fight. Burns is probably happy to have that fight. But, you know, in the process, what is happening here with what Jorge Masvidal is trying to put together for his career? It's a problem. Talking to the biggest names in pro wrestling. This is Busted Open. WWE Hall of Famer, Devon Dudley. We don't have Dr. King anymore. We don't have Malcolm X. We don't have some of the great leaders of yesterday that led these peaceful marches and that got results. We need leaders that are respected in the black community that black people will listen to. Busted Open, Monday through Saturday, 9 to noon Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. The ESPN 30 for 30 B Water on Bruce Lee aired last night. The man behind the project joins us now on the hotline. It is Bao Win. Hi, Mr. Win. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Luke? Doing quite well. Well, first of all, um, how has the reception been? What have what have you what have you seen? What have you heard in terms of uh, people's responses after the airing on ESPN last night? Um, it's been kind of incredible i've just been reading and trying to respond to people's messages like basically all night long um and got some sleep and then now i have to be press again so i it's i'm taking a break from thanking people and just like reading uh people's personal connection to bruce and just personal history and childhood memories of of when they first uh saw bruce lee film so it's really touching uh, about so let's take a step back here for you because this feels like uh, an important story in understanding Bruce Lee's life but also in getting this story told uh, you know first of all what role has Bruce Lee played in your life how did this become a story that you wanted to tell well um so I I guess it starts when I was just about eight or nine years old and um I remember just seeing Enter the Dragon uh, on Saturday afternoon evening television. It was like in syndication playing on one of these networks that you don't think of something big playing necessarily. I was born about 10 years after Enter the Dragon came out, so I never got a chance to see his films on a big screen until later on in my life in certain like retrospective screenings. But when I first saw him, I was just sort of awe-inspired because you know, me as an Asian American boy at that time, I'd never seen um, myself in a way playing the hero. I, through Bruce Lee, I kind of saw, recognized myself as his image reflected, felt like it reflected mine in the mirror in many ways. And um, yeah, here was someone who looked like me playing the, the lead, the hero in a, in a feature film, because at that time and through, you know, decades of, of, past Hollywood iterations, the Asian American, especially the male, has always been seen as the villain or the enemy. 
um, or the bumbling sidekick or um, or servant. And uh, those negative betrayals, I think, really uh, reinforced who, where I thought I belonged in America at that time. And uh, seeing Bruce Lee sort of broke that. Now, in terms of making this documentary and ESPN getting on board, right, because they had a Lance Armstrong documentary, they had a Michael Jordan, and I, certainly I would never say that Bruce Lee is not a towering figure. He certainly is. But it's a little bit off the beaten path with the martial arts side of things. So I'm wondering how the process of this particular documentary uh, able to, uh, was able to grow its wings and, and became what it became. So ESPN came on board after I had already come up with the idea of the film and uh, we, my producer and I were shopping it around to different broadcasters, but um, because of various issues and obstacles, uh, we had a bit of hard time um, getting anyone to come on board originally. Uh, And my producer was like, okay, there's two other broadcasters that I think would be really into it. And one of them was ESPN and ESPN was never on my list of, of, of broadcasters to approach. Um, but you know, it kind of made perfect sense with their 30 for 30 series, which is a series I always um, admired and respected, especially as a filmmaker, because they are really director driven. And, um, you know, this is coming off, uh, OJ made in America a few years earlier. And I remember just being, really enthralled with the take on OJ's story and and not necessarily being about sports, but being about, you know, racial history of America, especially, um, and racial injustice against African-Americans. And, um, just knowing that I could possibly tell that same style of story using sports just as a background, it made me become more interested in approaching ESPN and, when we told them Bruce Lee, they did not hesitate. And they were like, yes, this is perfect for us. Because again, I think ESPN might use a vessel of sports for their stories and their projects, but it's not necessarily at the forefront of every story that they want to tell. So there's a lot of different layers to Bruce's life that are worth unraveling. The first one, and sort of the story of B. Waters, a big part of it is this, which is he here was a guy who, as you indicated, did not want to take these subservient roles um, and wanted to be featured in a way that he thought the the story deserved to be featured and the characters deserved to be featured, but he couldn't get it in Hollywood, so he went to Hong Kong, blew up, and then, of course, via a roundabout kind of way, Hollywood eventually figured out that the, this was a guy here. It's a really sort of important message, one, about personal perseverance, but two, sort of about the pernicious effects of racism, right? Because... Here is a case where a guy was absolutely right about what could be a major hit, about what audiences really wanted, about what they would respond to, and he couldn't get it despite his best intentions until he went and took his, uh, his, uh, his talent somewhere else, and it eventually kind of woke them up. Uh, it's an enduring message, sadly, to these days. I wonder what Bruce would say about the state of Asian actors in Hollywood today. Do you have any sense of things? I mean, it's funny that you ask that because if he was around today, I don't think we'd have the same issue and we wouldn't be having this conversation. This question wouldn't be positive because he would have been this advocate for Asian American representation for the last 40 plus years. Uh, he, he, you know, he passed away um, and he beca- he became immortalized, right, as this 30, uh, 32-year-old and became an icon um, and 
that icon has obviously inspired a lot of people, but it, it inspired people maybe specifically to be a martial arts star or martial artist and not the, all, all the different roles that he could have played because he didn't want to just be that action star. He didn't want to just be the martial artist on screen. He aimed towards becoming the leading man in a drama or a romance. And I think uh, if we had Bruce Lee being that, you know, representative of an Asian leading man, you know, in a romance or in a drama, then all these stereotypes that continue to persist would probably never, you know, be around right now um, just because he would have, he would have opened up so many doors with his existence and it would 40 years ago is a long time ago. The evolution of that would, I think really make an impact today. Yeah, certainly would. Uh, Bao Wen, the director of B Water, joins us here uh, on the Luke Thomas Show. You know, what's sort of amazing was the cast of people uh, in his life who he had a major impact on. None more so as a vocal advocate for many of the same issues, of course, but uh, for a life well lived in Kareem Abdul Jabbar. God, what a, what a sort of a, um, a odd couple they are. I wonder, um, in getting him to, to speak about these things, how receptive was he to tell this story? Were, were people eager to tell what they knew about Bruce, or were they, what, did a little bit of coaxing have to go into it? A lot of coaxing, not just a little bit, because, <laughs> um, you know, there have been a lot of films about Bruce Lee, right? There have been documentaries, and there was the film, the biopic fiction film, uh, Dragon, right, in the early 90s. And so a lot of people think they know the story of Bruce Lee inside out, and surely a lot of people do. Um, but there's a whole new generation, um, and not even the current generation, but my generation, who only know him through the name Bruce Lee. Uh, I, I didn't grow up knowing much about his biography. I knew him as an icon, as a, as a myth in, in some ways. And so I thought it was important to... Um, you know, talk about him and view him as an Asian American, as an immigrant American. Because sometimes uh, when we think of Bruce Lee, we think he transcends race. And I think maybe now he transcends race to, to people because he's this global cultural icon. But at the time he was living, he very much didn't transcend race because people, all this, most of the struggles that he went through is because of where he came from and what he looked like. And um, as an Asian American filmmaker, uh, there have been very little or no films that have been made about him, uh, like a feature documentary, done through this perspective, really, through this kind of lens. And uh, I think it was refreshing for some of the interview subjects that we talked to to talk about him in, in a different lens than the typical, oh, t- tell me what your favorite Bruce Lee film is, or tell me, um, was he really... X, Y, Z. Right. And, um, even though they've been telling his story for so long, I had many people tell me after the interviews, they're like, I've never been asked these questions before. And, you know, I, I took that to heart and I felt very honored that they would feel like this is a different type of story that I'm trying to tell with Bruce and with Kareem too. I don't think, you know, him as such a amazing civil rights figure. Uh, I'm not sure if, he's been asked these questions about Bruce as a kind of a a representation, you know, as icon for representation and this icon for the immigrant American, the other American. 
Uh, Bao, in the course of making this documentary, you must have learned many, many new things about Bruce. Is there any one kind of anecdote or piece of information that you learned along the way in assembling this that has really stuck out to you that maybe you weren't totally aware of beforehand or, or maybe even more fully helped you understand Bruce in a different way? Is there any kind of individual piece that stands out? I wouldn't say individual piece, but I say like kind of this overarching theme that Bruce was more than just a teacher. He was very much a student. Uh, We think of him as a teacher of his philosophy. We think of him as a teacher of martial arts to the stars, but we don't think of him as a student, kind of this humble student. And um, what I learned talking to the people who he met, especially in the beginning of his time in America, his second it's kind of his second coming in America since he was born here. Um, when he was just in his, you know, late teens or like 18, 19, and he met people like uh, uh, Jesse Glover and Amy Sambo, and they really taught him um, where he might belong in terms of uh, race relations in America. Um, Jesse was an African American, you know, a man, first student of Bruce's, and he was a student, uh, he was a a victim of police brutality. And that was one of the reasons that Jesse decided to learn self-defense, learn martial arts. And I think that motivation and those conversations that he had with Bruce early on really were formative in terms of how Bruce viewed America. And then Amy, um, who is Japanese American, she really taught Bruce the, the idea of what it means to be Asian American. Bruce just had come from Hong Kong and he was trying to assimilate to America. So he understood those kind of separate identities being American or Asian, but he didn't really know what it meant to be Asian American. And it should be said that of course, Bruce didn't want to be viewed either as Chinese or North American with his famous quote that he says, but I think it's important that he knew internally his identity and how he had to have pride in it. And Amy taught him that in many ways um, because she was, you know, she was in the, just like, Jesse, who was a victim of kind of racial prejudice, uh, Amy was in the internment camps when she was young, um, you know, the Japanese internment camps during World War II. So I think those two relationships that we, I try to mention early in the film are, yeah, really important parts of Bruce's coming of age, not of just coming of age of himself, but his coming of age in America. Uh, Last question on this. Aside from changing the roles in which uh, Asian men were cast and how they could be viewed, which I don't mean to say is insignificant, but what I mean to say is, you know, Bruce, as I indicated, was a 20th century towering figure, right? He is part of, uh, you can't really understand key pieces of the 20th century without him. Uh, What else do you think was on the bucket list of things to do uh, that he wanted to, right? He had, I've actually read Tao of Jeet Kune Do. Um, Were there there other things that he had indicated to friends that this was something he wanted to address later in life that he never got the chance beyond what kind of cinema could be produced and the messages that could be therein sent? Yeah, I don't think it was just cinema that he wanted to just kind of represent you know, his, the Asian part of his culture in, in a positive way, but it was also obviously martial arts. So on, on all facets, the idea of just culture in general. Um, so taking both, you know, uh, his martial arts and his representation in film, he just wanted an overall kind of positive, or not, I shouldn't say positive, but multifaceted, um, you know, representation of what it meant to be 
uh, a Chinese American and Asian American, um, because there's something we said about how we're viewed um, by others, because, you know, we're, we're living in a time or we're starting to, to end this time, but most people have been like living at home, staying at home for the past few months. Right. And the representations of, of society are kind of limited to what we see on screen and what we see in films at home, because we're not having those same interactions um, person to person as much. And um, those representations have to kind of reflect society in a multifaceted way, in a diverse way, not just be negative betrayals and not just be positive betrayals, but show kind of the full humanity of a community of a race. Um, and I think, Going back to why I connected with Bruce Lee, um, I connected with him because I saw myself in him. But it's important for other people to see how, um, you know, how Asian Americans can be viewed in in any possible uh, kind of dimension instead of being just a singular um, kind of uh, myopic way. And so uh, Bruce wanted to change all that. He didn't want to, again, be seen as just the action star. He wanted people to see him as a romantic lead, as, as a, as a serious actor too. So I think that would have kind of evolved him from being this martial arts icon to, um, maybe someone who would have a little more clout, um, and use his sort of stature to help change things in, in maybe similar ways like Harry Belafonte or Marlon Brando did with their fame. Fair enough. Well, if you want to see Be Water, I'm sure there'll be reruns, but also I think you can check it out uh, on ESPN Plus at any point. Uh, Bao Win is the director. Congratulations on all that success, and we really appreciate your time today. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Catch The Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.